Amen. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be walking through Matthew chapter 27 as we journey to the empty tomb and Easter morning. And on Easter morning, we'll pick up uh, Matthew chapter 28. And the key theme of Matthew chapter 26 and 27, the key theme is this, this theme of being delivered. Jesus was delivered. It's the key word. It's used over 25 times. He was delivered up, delivered, delivered. He's handed over. He's delivered. You can kind of see the framing of it when you look at chapter 26, uh, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these, all these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then there's this progression of deliverance where Jesus is delivered over to Judas and he delivers them over to the religious authorities. They deliver him over to Pilate and then it culminates at the middle of chapter 27 in verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him up to be crucified. And so this idea of deliverance and our theme is going to be that uh, Jesus had to be delivered up so we then could be delivered from. And in the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us daily to pray, deliver us from evil. We need deliverance. And the Lord's prayer paints this beautiful vision of what it means to live as God's children in God's world. And the first part is about our commitments of, of celebrating who he is. We hallow his name in worship. We expand his kingdom in mission and we do his will as we follow him as disciples. And then our life is meant to be marked by dependence on him for our daily bread and deliverance from the evils that we face. But one of the things we're going to see is that in order to be to delivered from the evil we face is he had to be delivered into evil. So he was delivered up so we could be delivered in. And if we're going to really understand what we've been delivered from, we have to see in the picture of what he was delivered to all the danger that really is around us. See, one of the, the tragedies of our modern, modern world is we can become so comfortable that we're often not aware of the dangers we're in. And one of the themes is there's sin within and then there's storms without. And we need to be delivered from both of those. You know, it's kind of like if you've seen some of those videos, I, I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but one of the favorite sites I follow on Twitter is called Clown World. And then there's another one called the Darwin Awards. And you can watch and you can see people like some of the ones like there's people that they'll have their headphones in and they'll just be be by and they'll be like walking through the streets of New York and you see people like screeching and they have no idea. They're moments from being like obliterated, just lollygagging through life. And we can all do that in the spiritual world. We'll often, like Jesus told us, you have to pray for deliverance every day because we often are not aware of the danger around us. Sin within and storms without. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about the last several four, five, six months is, you know, just kind of what have we collectively endured over the last three years? We're finally on Easter going to put an end to our sermon on Matthew series, which we started in January of 2020. And there's a couple sections I know we, we missed and skipped, and so we'll maybe come back to those. But, you know, you just think about your life and the world you live in, how has it changed 
since January of 2020. I was talking to a friend recently and he laughed and he said, 2020 was the hardest decade of my life. <laughs> and then we were talking about in the context of leadership, like anybody who's had responsibility to lead in any organization, you think, why was it so hard? And you think about the, the collection of crises you had three interlocking crises that were all intertwined and enmeshed. You had the public health crisis, you had the economic crisis, and the civil and social civic crisis, all intermeshed with one another, and the weight of each would land on different people in different ways, but it left every just organization fractured and frayed, left everyone in a sense of kind of fear and paralysis, you know, these different crises forced, if you were leading anything, you were forced in a situation where you had to make consequential decisions among undesirable outcomes with imperfect information in the midst of pressure and conflict, knowing that mistakes are inevitable and often they could be really costly. So for many people, that's kind of life at work. But then now you think life at home. And you think the internal, what happened, and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is the, the reduction in just capacity. Like we feel like things that we used to do with no problem, now we need multiple days of recovery after them and need longer naps. And just why? With the, the loss of capacity. Think about the loss of like emotional and relational capacity. It seems life is just more stressful. No one is firing on all cylinders. It's almost like the people mover at either Disney or the airport, but we're going against it. And you're walking against the grain. So it makes it challenging. You know, I was talking to another friend who taught, he uh, is a pastor in town and said, you know, I used to like lead with enthusiasm. It's like, that was my superpower. I could rally people and get them uh, motivated. And he's just, I just have got nothing. And he goes, what do you do when you have, have no, no enthusiasm? His line was, how does Superman function if he can't fly? I said, like, I don't think you're Superman. <laughs> But then you think kind of decision-making capacity. You think of just like, you know, there was a time where, you know, the biggest decision you had to make when you decided what sandwich you wanted for lunch is just where to go. And then if they're going to have Publix roast beef or Boar's Head roast beef. And then it transforms now. Well, like, do I even go? Do I call? Should I wear a mask? Not wear a mask? This whole uh, collection of decisions that un can be misrepresented, misinterpreted, cause relational breach. It just makes this weariness. So many are just kind of existing, surviving. And you wonder, right, how can we be delivered from the sins within and the storms without? Or if you talk about those kind of crises, like would anybody willingly walk into that kind of situation? Would you choose to walk into that? And one of the remarkable things about Matthew 26 and 27 is we see Jesus very openly and willingly walking into what in essence is the ultimate crisis that the world will ever experience. So as we just kind of walk through this the next two weeks, we can learn some tremendous things about how we uh, engage, live, embody that type of situation. And so let's just kind of progress through, starting in 27, verse one and two, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So this is the next stage in the succession of deliverances where he's been delivered to Judas, delivered to the people, now delivered uh, to Pilate. 
to be put to death. And then Matthew has these unique kind of insertions where we get this aside about Judas, and then we get this aside about Barabbas and Pilate's wife. And it's worth thinking, it's like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why. You know, as you read your Bible just at home or in groups, in small groups, all great Bible study begins with the, the phrase, huh, that's interesting. And so I wonder why. Because it's all intentional, it's all purposeful. And so then there's a section about Judas. So when Judas, his betrayer, saw Jesus was condemned. Now, one of the fascinating things, don't quite come through in English, is the word for deliverer or delivered and betrayer or betrayed are the same word. So this is the same word. So when his betray, his deliverer, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying, delivering innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since that's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So Judas, the betrayer, same word as deliverer, and what, whether you translate it deliver or betray, all depends on where you're moving them from and to. See, the whole word is a movement from here to here. So uh, Judas is the betrayer because he's moving, he's delivering Jesus from freedom to captivity, from life to death. And that's what sin does. It wants to bring us from freedom to bondage, from life to death. And Jesus is the great deliverer because he delivers, he brings us from captivity to freedom, out of death into life. But then you think about that name, Judas, it's just become synonymous with traitor. You know, Cynthia and I, when we were teaching, we went to China to teach English uh, I was going to say a few years ago, almost 20. Mm. Um, a few years ago, we went to China to teach English. And one of the interesting things that we got such a, got, that we were tickled by is when you'd introduce yourself to people and you'd say, hey, well, tell me your name. And they say, well, here's my kind of given name, but here's my American name. And the American name was something, normally something like Ariel. Michael Jackson, Madonna, and so <laughs> nice to meet you, Madonna. And uh, it's just interesting. So, why did you choose that name? And then you just think about your name. So, I want to do a little straw poll. You can kind of subtly lift up your hand. If your name is, or you know anyone with the name Peter, Andrew, Thomas, Matthew, Philip, James. John, and we know a lot of folks. All of you and all of them are named after the disciples. Now, do we have any Judases? So, no, not really. There's not a lot of, you know, children's hospitals or churches or colleges or laundromats named after Judas. It's like, why? Why did that name die? In the first century, it was the two most popular names were Simon and Judas. 
And then now it's died. And you say, why? Because he's the betrayer. And then you look from not just his perspective. I, reading this week, really became sympathetic to Judas because you can see here's a broken man who comes to the religious authorities wanting to find mercy. And notice how he responds. You have, they respond. You have these echoes of, of Psalm 2 where they're, they're counseling together. And if you were here four or five weeks ago when we were going through Matthew 24 and the woes to the Pharisees and Jesus critiques them because you tithe, mint, dill, cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And here we see them breaking all of those things with an act of injustice, an act of tremendous uh, unmerciful act, unfaithful act. They were meant to be God's instruments for mercy and here comes a broken sinner to them and maybe the saddest line is when he comes and says I have condemned innocent blood and they say what's that to us why do we care why are you telling us I don't know maybe because that's your job to deal with sinners who come needing repentance It'd be kind of like if you came to me in some broken moment and you said, I've been broken over this and I'm sorry and I, I just need someone to pray for me. And I said, why are you telling me that? And I think, well, maybe you're not in the right occupation. And they come to them seeking mercy and they, they were supposed to be God's instruments for mercy. And then you have Judas. He needs deliverance from his guilty conscience, but he goes to the wrong place. He needs deliverance from the ones who were meant to bring healing, but he goes to the wrong place. But Jesus was delivered up so we could be delivered from, uh, delivered from. So if you find yourself like Judas, broken, wounded, weary, conscious, condemning, go to the right place. Go to Christ. And one of the ironies here is Judas recognizes this is the innocent one. The innocent one will be treated as guilty. So all the guilty ones can be treated as innocent. And then he gets sent away, and then the, the scene turns, and now Jesus is before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You know, it's one of the th amazing things as you walk through Jesus. So I would encourage you over next two weeks, spend some time in Matthew 26 and 27 and just walk with him through these scenarios. And this is such an interesting passage where they're attacking and falsely accusing and he just stays silent. You know, Calvin said, Christ kept silence then so he could be our spokesman in heaven now. It's just remarkable dignity. Nobody in this whole scenario has any idea what's actually happening. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody understands what Jesus is experiencing and enduring. And if you're honest, every one of you know that in some small realm and arena, that's what your life is like. Every person in here has something where no one really knows or no one really understands. It could be an element in work or family, or maybe it's a deep wound that you've carried for years. And in all of those scenarios and situations, we can join him. We can fellowship in his suffering. We're getting a foretaste of what it's like to walk with him through these things. And then there's a turn in front of Barabbas. Um, 
in verse 15, because now uh, the feast, so we're reading now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd, same similar word, delivered, uh, handed over, released, all in kind of the same word family. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So now two interesting characters are just going to come on the scene very quickly, almost subtly, and they're just remarkable. You just wonder. And they then, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And they said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Now, two interesting characters, Barabbas and then Pilate's wife come on the scene. And I had no idea uh, and uh, didn't have time to go down the Barabbas rabbit hole, but I had no idea that in the earliest manuscripts, uh, his name is attributed as Jesus Barabbas. And there is a very early uh, tradition that Barabbas uh, was a leader of an insurrectionist group, a terrorist cell. They had him and two his two top lieutenants, and that the three crosses that were already set up was one was for him, and then the other were for the other two. And that Pilate holds up, which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus the one you call the Christ, or do you want Jesus the Barabbas? Now, I have no idea if that's true, but that really is striking. I'd love to do some more research. Do you want the, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous? Wouldn't it be remarkable and just kind of how God works if that cross was intended for Barabbas and Jesus wound up on it? And then they call out, whom will you choose? And such a stark, sad question. Who are you going to choose, this Jesus or this Jesus? And that question is still offered to us today. Who do you choose? Do you choose between, we don't necessarily have the choice between Barabbas or Jesus, but it's Jesus in the beach, or Jesus in soccer, or Jesus in Disney Springs. Which will you choose? And then here comes Pilate, his wife, and she's a fascinating character. Uh, the Coptic Church, which is the oldest church uh, in existence, claims that she became a Christian and they've canonized her as a saint. And you can see how Matthew is po uh, putting these two things together where at the very beginning it's the Gentile wise women, uh, wise men who fall on their face to worship Jesus. And at the very end it's a Gentile wise woman who's declaring who he really is. And it's interesting, there's a remarkable backstory behind Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. There's lots of, uh, not intrigue, but just how it came about. But there was one sermon that he preached early in his career where he was talking about pilot, or the pilot's wife's dream. Now she had a dream 
And he makes a turn. He says, but I have a dream. I have a dream that one day men and women, Jews and Gentiles, servants and masters from the red hills of Georgia to the rolling hills of Rome will all sit at the table of brotherhood and join hands under one creed, acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ of all. This Savior, he, he motivates dreams, dreams that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So she had this dream and part of the irony running through this whole thing is notice who um, Judas is declaring Jesus is innocent and then Pilate is declaring that he's innocent. We'll see in a minute. She's declaring to him, this is a righteous man, but the religious leaders are claiming to the crowd that he's unrighteous. And then it culminates, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. So you see running through this little section is just the blood. They know only blood can atone for blood. Water can't wash it away. And they cry out the crowd, if we are wrong, then we'll pay for it by our blood. And the tragedy of the stories, they were wrong. And he paid for it by his blood. And he prays for them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing in this scene. The notorious one is let go and the righteous one is bound. The unrighteous released and the righteous condemned. And you just wonder why would Jesus willingly enter into these things? Why release the guilty and punish the innocent? It's so unjust. Why, why the scourging is so cruel? Why have him delivered to be over to be crucified is so embarrassing and excruciating? Why would he willingly walk through the pain and the shame? You know, Isaiah 55, his echoes in the background, he was scourged, he was crucified, he was despised, he was rejected, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastised, he was oppressed. Why? For our transgressions, for our iniquities, it's his scourging that brought our healing. His chastisement brought our peace. The guilty one was released, and the innocent one suffers as the Lord lays upon him the iniquity of us all. He was delivered up so we could be delivered from and then in your bulletin, you kind of see what Joe read, the grand litany of delivered us over. That comes from um, um, the prayer book in the 1550s. Uh, and uh, I just went blank on the person, uh, Thomas Cramer, uh, wrote that. And the whole idea is he wanted to unpack when we say deliver us from evil, what are the things we need to be delivered from? And here's the whole litany of the things. And one of the things we see here as you read through it, and I'd spend some time this week kind of reading through it, is we don't mainly need deliverance from our adverse circumstances. We need deliverance from the spiritual evil that is within, that can turn both good and bad circumstances against us. 
it starts out framing that it's sin in our heart that spawns all kinds of inclinations to do something other than God's will and love something or someone more than God himself. This is the deepest danger. You know, look, he got the heading on the first litany and then five more. And what he's doing is saying these are kind of the five. It's almost like Satan is a master ringleader and he can decide which order one of these things will come at you. But he didn't have to inject them into the system. They were all there. And you can read through, you can see some of the things that talk about sin's method. It's blindness, hardness of heart, deceit. And then it's manifested itself in pride and hypocrisy and unlovingness. And so these are the things that we are delivered from. You know, I think one of the interesting things about crises is they often don't just, you don't just know how to move forward. You don't know how to kind of evaluate your life and how you evaluate your days and what you're doing. And, you know, we live in a world that so much of the evaluation is, all right, have tasks been tackled, accomplishes, met, goals set and achieved or not achieved. But when you understand our need for deliverance, you can get a whole different perspective on what a life lived well is really like. Maybe the mark of the good life is mercies received and deliverances experienced. Each morning, fresh mercies. Or 2 Corinthians uh, 1, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us from sins within and storms without. So what do you need to be delivered from this morning? He was delivered over into ultimate shame so you can be delivered from it. He was delivered over into this ultimate pain so you can be delivered from it. Are you bound by fear and paralysis? Seek deliverance. Are you emotionally depleted? Then seek his fullness. From his fullness, receive grace upon grace. Are you merely surviving? Then ask and seek deliverance so you can live the life abundantly. Are you being asked to walk through a crisis like this? And you've asked, let this cup pass from me. And the Lord has said, no. Then walk with him as he walks these steps. You know, the people, there's an ironic saying where they say, his blood be on us. And they don't realize, but they're asking for the thing they most deeply need. Remember, this is the night of the Passover. When the lamb would be slain and a hyssop branch would be dipped into his blood and it would be wiped over the doorframe of their house so that the, the wrath of the Lord would be passed over and they could shelter under the shadow of his all, the almighty wings. See, this whole cycle of deliverance. First, Jesus is delivered over to Judas, then to the religious leaders, then to Pilate, then to the cross. But ultimately, we know from Romans 8, 32, that God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Now, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was delivered into evil so we could be delivered from evil, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take in remembrance of me.